right, good morning, everyone. Y'all can have a seat. July 4th crowd. This means you guys did good on July 4th. The other folks did not. So when they get back, we're going to have to really ream into them. Um, my name is Josh. Uh, I'm the pastor here. I'm so thankful you're here. Uh, welcome. If this is your first time here, uh, we're Resonate. Um, and if this is your first time here, you are welcome to something next week. And I really want to harp on this uh, event that's happening next week, especially for those that are listening on the podcast right now. Next week, July 14th, Omid mentioned it, but we're going to have our volunteer appreciation uh, barbecue Sunday. And this is a yearly event, and it's more than just appreciating you for, like, thank you for giving your time. That's amazing. Um, but more than that, we kind of come together as sort of a church family and, and cast some vision for the next year. I like to say that on it Resonate, we're kind of on a school schedule, which means that like in the fall is kind of what, what represents a new season for us. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to throw out some fun stuff for what's going to be happening in the fall, including uh, some stuff we're going to be moving and shaking around. So you'll want to be there. Um, and I want to throw this out to everyone. A volunteer at Resonate is not a hard thing to be. <laughs> so all you need to do after this is just say, can I move a chair or something? And I'll be like, cool, you are invited to the barbecue. <laughs> that is literally the only thing you need to do. Um, it's not a big thing. But it is an excellent opportunity to just come hang out and, and, and get to know the people that are sitting next to you and around you. Uh, and there's no better uh, thing to unite us all than barbecued food. So please be there um, and, and feel free, you know, invite people. Uh, we just, we want this to be a special event for our church family uh, and we want it to be exciting. So July 14th, yes, please. Do you have an address? Uh, I do not have an address off the top of my head, but I will go with the last song, figure that out, come back and tell it out to all of you. Um, cool. Uh, so we are in the middle of a series um, called Christianese. So basically, we've been walking through uh, sort of the, the, the tired parts of Scripture, maybe the tired parts of, of what we've heard Jesus say over and over and over again. And the sad part is these parts are usually the most powerful parts in all the Bible. They're the red letters. They're the things that truly, truly get to the heart of what Jesus wanted to do in his mission here on earth. And unfortunately, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've kind of co-opted these phrases and we've overused them or we've misused them. And oftentimes they've been bent and, and taken out of context and put in weird places. And oftentimes, more than not, that hurts people. Uh, and Christianese uh, is a fun term and it's fun to make fun of, but it is a vernacular that tends to keep people out. Rather than including and swing the doors wide open, which is all Jesus was doing while he was here, this kingdom that was at hand, this kingdom that he was ushering in, he never mentioned boundaries. It was always like, how do we swing the door as wide as possible and invite as many people in? And to do that, he used language that was far broader than even just his Hebrew background or his Aramaic background or even the Greek influence or the Roman influence. He pulled from everything. And the most powerful thing that he usually pulled from was images. So if you were talking to Jesus and you asked him a question, chances are he would either fire a question back, which is a really infuriating way to have a conversation, or he would usually tell a story, right? He would say, well, the kingdom of God is like this. And then he would tell this beautiful story about a good Samaritan or about a lost coin, what have you. But most of the time at the core of a parable, there's a couple things. One, there's a crisis. So in a parable, in a good story, any good story, there's a crisis, right? Something's gone wrong. We've lost the coin. Or we've lost the son, or we've lost the sheep. A lot of losing, right, in the Bible, but there's a crisis in it. And then another key element of a parable or a good story is a symbol or a metaphor or an image. An image can take you far further than any linguistic tool we have. 
any language that we can use, any fancy words that we can put, an image just does it better. Like when we say things like in English, like uh, kill two birds with one stone, right? We're not literally saying like go out and murder some birds. What we're saying is you can get this, ta this, this task done with one thing rather than doing a bunch of things. Or break a leg. In theater, you don't say good luck. For some reason, that's terrible luck. So you say break a leg. These are all getting very violent. As I <laughs> Another is um, it costs an arm and a leg. Again, oddly violent. Uh, and then uh, if someone does really well, you're like, you killed it up there. Again, really oddly violent. We should rethink our images in the English language. Um, but primarily, what we're talking about here is we're using metaphor. We're using images. We're using symbols because they speak louder than our words can. Right? A lot of people say actions speak louder than words. That's totally true. But images speak louder than words as well. When we use an image of something, we can use that for days and unpack it. And Jesus was a master at that. He would give us images in his stories. And so here we are 2,000, later, 2000 years later still unpacking those images and those stories. Like It's a tremendous tool if used properly. If used properly, and especially for us in our context now in 2019, as we look at the images that Jesus is used, uses, we kind of have to put an ancient lens on those to really see how powerful those images are. Because some of them still hold, right? There are beautiful images that Jesus, is, that Jesus uses that like, literally still work for us today. We still use that kind of language. But some of them we don't, and some of them we need a little refresher. So here's, here's some, uh, uh, some images in the Bible. Um, oh, sorry, can we, I think it's the next one there. You are Lord of Fire. Okay, okay. Okay, so this is out of Isaiah 64.8. Um, it says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and all of us are the work of your hands. Now, that's a beautiful metaphor, and that's a beautiful image, and we can see that too, because we've all seen ghosts with the clay, right? We know what that means and what that is to throw a pot or something like that. But in ancient times, clay and potters were even more fascinating. You didn't have the fancy wheel. You didn't have all of that stuff to get the perfect shape. Potters would make, the, make their pots, but oftentimes these pots were not in a perfect shape. These pots were each unique in their own individual way because when you sat down to make a pot, you didn't have the fancy instruments and the fancy tools to make everyone come out exactly the same. And so when a potter threw a pot, it would be uniquely that pot, right? So what Isaiah is saying is, God, our Father, we are the clay and you are the potter and all of us are the work of your hand. Not just that you've made us, but that you've made us specifically, uniquely beautiful in our own way. And not just that, but pots weren't made just to sit on a shelf. They were functional. They were made to do something. So not only were we made uniquely beautiful, but we're made uniquely beautiful to do something in this world. This is where images can take us. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is John 6.35. This is Jesus talking. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, if we take this literally, we're going to read the Bible, and we're no longer going to need food or water. That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, basically, whoever comes to me, I am the bread of life. Now, that makes sense to us. Bread is a fundamental sort of food, right? Like, this is the thing that we all need to survive. Bread is sort of the simplest food available. And that's a beautiful picture. But in Jesus' Hebrew context back then, bread was a symbol for something. It was always a symbol for something. And it was a symbol for life. So Jesus, in this sentence, just isn't saying, I'm the bread of life. He's saying, I'm the life of life. I'm at the core of what life really, really is. And so when you encounter me, you're going to experience life abundantly, hugely. Right? 
I'm the life of life. And then this next verse here, it says, uh, this is not on 8.12, this is John 8.12, and it says, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Basically, that means, yes, like Jesus is the light of the world. That means that light is going to come in us, and it's gonna, we're going to shine, all that beautiful stuff. But light in that context as well also just simply meant shining a light on it so that you can see it, right? When the scriptures begin and God says, let there be light, it's not just a literal light that's coming, but it's a, it's a symbolic form for us to say, look, let there be light, which means that now, ooh, wait, now we can begin to understand. We can see things in a way that we never saw them before. Let there be light. Let there be understanding. In this understanding, light literally meant enlightenment. That's where we get that term, enlightenment, right? I am the light of the world. Therefore, if you follow me, you're going to begin to understand the world in a totally different way. Do we see how these images can carry things that are a lot bigger than just a common sentence? A lot bigger than just literally saying, well, when he says he's the light of the world, he means enlightenment, and I am enlightenment, and I am Like, if he tries to understand it, it's, it's describing the tune and killing the song. Right? There's a beauty that's lost when we try to dissect things and get down to the nitty-gritty and all the different letters and all the different words and everything. Basically, he's just saying, hey, let me hand you this beautiful image, this beautiful symbol, and I want to see what you can come up with it. I want to see how you unpack that. I want to see what beauty you pull out from that. You see, image is the Bible's primary language, and it is for a reason. We can keep images for a very long time. Rather than just languages that die out, languages that die out, we have images that endure for centuries and centuries and centuries, and we're still obsessed with images. Images are a universal language. No matter what country you go to in the world, you're going to find images that you understand, street signs that you understand for some reason, even if you don't understand the language. For some reason, this works everywhere in the world, right? A thumbs up is a universal symbol for okay, and then this is like you've done something wrong. For some reason, we all understand images on a fundamental level more than we do words. Those take longer, right? But an image, an image can carry us really, really, really far. And we're still super, super obsessed with them. Uh, This is a picture. I don't know if we have that, um, uh, the picture of all of the different pictures that are printed out. Beautiful. This is a picture. Can we pull the lights down there? That message, beautiful. Um, so you can't really see it because it's pixelated. Uh, this is an art installation that happened in Holland uh, in 2011. So this is 2011. We're in 2019. It's only gotten crazier. These are all of the pictures uploaded in one 24-hour period from just the website Flickr. Now, Flickr in our day doesn't even really pull that much traffic anymore. Can you imagine how many pictures there would be if we printed out every single photo posted to all of social media platforms in just one day. If this is Flickr, imagine social media in just one day. There are people that believe that we see over a thousand images a day in social media alone. A thousand images a day. Picture that from when Jesus' time where you're just simply walking down the road. You might see a potter, you might see a blacksmith, you might see a mountain, you might see a stream. We're strolling through and we can see pictures of dogs, playing, we can see pictures of National Geographic, all just crammed up all into each other, all on top of each other. Pictures of our grandparents right next to pictures of monkeys in the Amazon. Everything is in there. And we just scroll and we scroll and we absorb and we absorb. We are absorbing images at a rate that we never have before, that we never have before. And there's a reason that when we scroll all the way to the bottom of that feed, whatever that feed might be, we don't leave going like, ah, time well spent. 
right? We usually leave going like, I feel slightly exhausted for some reason. <laughs> and the reason we feel exhausted is because those images are super powerful. They matter. But the problem is in most of our Instagram feeds, Facebook, or just plug and play, whatever social media platform you use, we are viewing images that are not of reality. We're viewing images that people take painstakingly long amounts of time to craft, right? Chelsea and I have been able to travel a bit this summer, and everywhere we travel now, um, I, I want to actually create an Instagram account of this, but everywhere we travel, we see a good friend, just a very good friend, taking pictures of their other friend posing in different ways, like in different, like with different monuments, for like, no lie, you could leave, go to an exhibit, come back out, and they might still be taking that same picture. So what I want to do is create an Instagram account where I simply take pictures of other people taking pictures and call it the good friends account or heroes of Instagram, right? Because these people are there with their friends, just watching them pose, getting that perfect picture so that then they can post it to social media and make it look like they did that in just one second, right? This is just, <laughs> I just threw this up here, no big deal even though it took 30 minutes and a lot of photo editing, right? Th these are the images that we're scrolling through. We're obsessed with our own image. Check this out. This is a, an infographic of what we actually get, and this is, uh, this is from Psychology Today. Um, when you feel inferior, the main reason, click the top three from below. And if you'll look, like your, your sexual orientation is at the bottom of that, your religion, your family's economic status, your gender, your race, your age, your size, your intelligence, your ability, and then up at the top, your appearance, your image, the way that you look. This is what makes you feel the most inferior. And this can go way beyond sort of like your physical appearance, because in LA, we're all kind of obsessed with that. But in all honesty, your appearance trickles into most of the things that you find important in your life. Right? What car am I driving? What career am I in? What position am I in? What status do I have? Where am I sitting on the plane? Right? All of these things factor into your appearance, and the truth of the matter is, if there's a point where our appearance is just off, we say the wrong thing at the party, we do whatever, we're not at the right part of the plane, we are going to begin to feel inferior, and that's simply not what God wants at all. Right? I remember uh, there was this, I used to play music and write songs, and, uh, and during my songwriting period, I would write songs for R&B artists, because if you look at this, you just think R&B artists. Um, but I, I used to write songs for R&B artists with my songwriting partner, Jay, uh, and Jay was a hothead, and he would tell you that. I'm not saying anything uh, negative about Jay here, but he, would, he had a tendency to, we'd be in a studio session, and if something went awry, uh, he, he just had a temper, and he would go off on you know, the engineer or whatever, or the song, other songwriters, or whatever it might be. And we had a very lucrative possibility, uh, and due to a little argument that Jay got in, uh, that went away, uh, all in one session. So we were sitting down, we were supposed to write like a, a, a series of songs, uh, and right at the beginning of the session, Jay flies off the handle, uh, and I'm not going to blame Jay for everything, but Jay flies off the handle, and, and we lose that opportunity. And so afterwards, he, he feels bad, and he's like, what should we do? Uh, and I was like, well, we just need to go and apologize. Like, it's pretty simple. Like, if we just go in there and we humble ourselves and we say, I'm sorry, uh, we should be able to get this back. And we go back in the studio. Uh, those songwriters are no longer there. Uh, they've left through the back door uh, trying to escape from us, mostly Jay. Anyway, uh, trying to escape from us. And so uh, we call them. We don't get anything. We text them. We don't get anything. We email them. We don't get anything. And then finally, about two hours later, we get an email saying, sorry, had to catch a flight to Vegas. We have a session there. Sorry it didn't work out with all of us. 
And so we begin to think like, oh, it's really, we've blown it, like this is it, like we're not gonna get this job. Uh, and then Jay says, no, we are gonna get this job. I just booked us flights to Vegas and we're gonna fly there and we're gonna apologize in person. And I was like, that's crazy town. <laughs> so we drive to the airport, we get on a plane. This is all happening at like 8 p.m. We get on a plane, we land at 9 p.m. Jay knows where they are at at that point. We go, I'm scrambling to change. I brought a suit because we're gonna go in a club and I don't know what to wear in a club, so I brought a three-piece suit. Anyway, I'm putting on a suit in a car and we get there and we're scrambling and we get to the front of the line. This is our one chance to apologize and I'm feeling good and I'm dressed right and we get up to the front. My appearance is looking great. That's where the story is going. So my appearance looks good. The bouncer takes one look at me. He looks down and he sees what I see and what I see is that I am still wearing rainbow sandals, <laughs> three-piece suit, rainbow sandals. <laughs> and he says, you are not coming in here. Can you only imagine my hurt, my pain, due to my appearance and my lack thereof, right? Appearance hurts. Long story short, Jay got in there, everything was fine. I just hung out in the lobby. Anyway, appearance can hurt us in so many ways if we believe that we have not come to the situation in the right way. Because we as humans, if your image isn't right, if you don't look right, if your appearance isn't great, then we begin to categorize. It's our natural inclination and it's stupid, but we do. We begin to say like, this person is of this stature because of the way that they look or the way that they act or the job that they have or the status that they are in. And Jesus is constantly trying to bust us out of those like little compartmentalizations. He's saying, like, you can't try and put someone in a box because that's not them. Their image, their appearance, their whatever, that is not who they are. Their job, that is not who they are. Stop trying to categorize. In our country right now, the largest problem is categorization. <laughs> we are dealing with entirely separated and segregated people because we begin to categorize based on appearance and based on image, right? I'm a part of this party, you're a part of that party, therefore we can't have dinner together anymore. We can't have conversations anymore because your image is this and my image is this and your image of what our country should be is that and my image of what our country should be is that. And so this isn't going to work anymore. We can't hang out, right? God is constantly trying to break that out. And the way that he does that in the most simple terms and the way that he says it over and over and over again in scripture is that your image has nothing to do with you. In fact, you were made in the image of me. You were made in the image of the almighty creator, loving God, which means you can't categorize it. I love this quote um, from Teresa of Avalon. It goes like this. I can find nothing with which to compare the great beauty of a soul and its great capacity. In fact, however acute our intellects may be, they will no more be able to attain a comprehension of this than to, under, uh, than to an understanding of God. For as he himself says, he created us in his image and likeness. Now, if this is so, and it is, there's no point in our fatiguing ourselves by attempting to comprehend the beauty of this castle, which is what she refers to as the human soul, uh, for though it is his creature, and there, is, and there is therefore as much difference between it and God as between creature and creator, the very fact that his majesty says it is made in his image means that we can hardly form any concept of the soul's great dignity and beauty. We can hardly form a concept of the soul's great dignity and beauty. 
what she's trying to get at and what Jesus is constantly trying to get at and what God from the very beginning when he makes it very clear that you are made in my image is trying to get at is that we cannot judge people based upon their image because their image is our image. <laughs> their image is the very image of God and that blows the doors wide open, right? And the problem is that we try, with images just in general, we try to craft them or control them or manipulate them. And that's what we do when we judge people or we put them in a box. We're saying, I can label you, I can name you, and therefore I can control or manipulate my ideas about you, and hopefully that way I can manipulate you. Right? I can change you because now I've named you, now I've, now I've categorized you, now I've created an image of you. But the Bible gets to this, and this is where we get to our Christianese word. The Bible gets to this, and he calls that an idol, right? And this is a word that's been totally abused uh, by Christians. We either don't take it seriously at all, or we take it way too seriously. Uh, but the idea of idols is not just some statue, but it's an image that we are able to craft and control. We're able to craft and control. It's something that we can attain, we can grab, and we can take a hold of, right? But in the scripture and in a spiritual life and in a walk with Jesus, we can find that that just does not work. And in fact, it's painful. God is trying to pull us out of that, saying like, no, 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 no. You can't ever contain this life that you're living. No more than you can contain me. There's a beautiful, awesome story. It's one of my favorite stories in scripture, and it's of Moses. Uh, and this is towards the the midsection of Moses' career. He's already done the big flashy stuff, right? He's split the Red Sea. Uh, he's gotten his people um, to Mount Sinai. And, and, and he is now a leader of a freshly free nation. And the Ten Commandments have been handed down and all this glorious stuff has happened and he's performed all these miracles and all these signs. And he alone is able to go up on the Mount Sinai and he's able to talk to God, right? And this is huge. That should be enough. If I'm able to walk up a mountain and audibly talk to God, I'm good. But Moses, as we all do, starts to get used to that kind of relationship, that level of relationship. And so he takes it a step further and he says to God, I, I want to see you. Like I, want, I, I want an image of you. I want to be able to hold you in my mind's eye. I, like I want to see your shape. I want to see what you look like. And so God says, you want to see me? That's not possible. Right? And that's sort of infuriating to all of us because it's just like, well, that's, a, that's sort of a cop-out answer. But he basically says, like, no one can see me and live. Again, maybe a cop-out answer, right? No, that's not fair. Like, I should be able to see you. I'm working on your behalf here. Let me see you. Especially Moses, who's given up everything, right? Like, let me see you. And God says, no, no, no. Well, here's what I will do. I want you to come here, and I want you to put your eye in the cleft of this rock. Now, we don't have many clefts in our rocks these days, but a cleft in a rock is just basically a, a hole that you could see through. Right? He says, I want you to come here. So what's God doing? He's, he's basically cutting off the full range of vision, and he's giving him this tiny little hole that he can see through to see. And then God says, now hold on as the Lord God passes by, as I pass by you. And what's fascinating there is that the Hebrew is the word acre, which means my afterward. <laughs> Some translations translate into my hind parts. I'll save you from that one. But basically it means my afterward. Hold on, you want to see me? Here, I'll give you this small hole, and you can see where I just was. You see, a life with God, a life with Jesus, a relationship with Christ, is not that we can hold it, we can contain it, and we can see it right where it is. No, we're always one step behind because we are not meant to grab, we're meant to follow. 
We're meant to see where God was so that we can step into that place and continue that pattern. Oh, here's God. Oh, now here's God. Oh, here's God. Now here's God. Not getting ahead of God, but rather like following. Not grabbing and not trying to create an image, but rather catching up with the image. And before we know it, before long, as we walk and we journey with this, we're going to begin to form an image. We're going to see that that image is constantly knocked down, rebuilt, knocked down, rebuilt, and that is a healthy spiritual life. An unhealthy spiritual life is building a single image of God that never changes. Because if your image of God never changes, you're not growing. You're staying stagnant. You're staying the same. Just like if you thought exactly the way that you were supposed to think 10 years ago, that's not a great life you're living, right? We're supposed to get smarter, learn more, do more things, gain more experience, and as a result, our worldview should get wider and more beautiful. And that's the same with our spiritual life. As we walk through a spiritual life, a walk with Jesus, we're not called to just hold on to this one thing that we think he is and then keep going and then never deviate from that because God is something we're supposed to be following. And guess what? He walks wherever he wants to walk. <laughs> He's not beholden to any image we have of him. That's called an idol, right? And Americans need a real lesson uh, in idols. And I'm not talking like American Idol or Ryan Seacrest or anything. What I'm talking about is we need a real lesson on what an idol actually is. It's a really powerful idea. It's those images that we can carve out, right? It's those images that we can hold and we can say. An idol is something that we can hold on to. And God is not anything that we can ever, ever hold on to, right? We celebrate celebrity in such a massive way. And it's not just celebrity. Like we can, we can go through our social media or TV or whatever, and we can point out those celebrities that we all want to dress like or we all want to eat like or whatever it might be, right? We celebrate those, but it goes deeper than that. The word celebrity just comes from the simple root, celebrate. It's the stuff that we celebrate, right? I'm going to celebrate that new promotion. Or when I get there in that job, then I'll be able to celebrate. The stuff that we're holding out there to celebrate easily becomes an idol to us. We begin to worship that stuff so much and so fervently that we begin to miss the holy all around us. We begin to miss the real stuff that God is doing because we think we're not there yet. And there's always a there yet in our mind, no matter how old we are. Right? There's always, if, I'm, if I get that over there, then I'll finally be whole and I can really, really start enjoying the marrow of life, right? Like once it's there, once that's taken care of, I won't worry about anything anymore, which is totally, totally untrue because there's always another part. And as we do that, and we say like once I get there, what we're doing with ourselves and our soul is we're partitioning off the best part of us and we're plopping it over there. And we're saying the best part of me is going to come out once this is here, rather than keeping the best part of you with you right here, right now, and walking through life fully whole and fully beautiful, you're robbing yourself of that and giving it to a you that does not exist yet. It does not exist yet. We just grind and grind and grind trying to get to that place and we miss the beauty that's already there all around us. Now my favorite story, Moses is only one of my favorite stories, my favorite story in scripture is a story that comes up here at least once a month <laughs> and that is the story of Jacob. And Jacob is the most fascinating character in all of scripture to me because Jacob's name, see in scripture and in the ancient times, names 
meant something. Your name defined what you were, right? Adam's name means just mankind. Eve's name means mother of all humanity, right? These are, these are names, but they're also symbols. They're images. So when we meet these characters, we get an image, and we hold that, and we say, okay, this is what's going to define them. And for Jacob, Jacob simply means heel, because he grabs onto his brother's heel, or the other translation of that, and the more apt translation is liar. So instantly when we meet Jacob, the image we get is of a liar. This guy is going to lie his way through life, and he does. He starts his life out by stealing his brother's inheritance with the help of his mother. Very Game of Thrones-esque. He, he gets his mom's help, and then his mom dresses him up in all of these coarse hairs and goat hairs because his brother is a big, hairy, massive man. Uh, and he goes in, and his father, who's almost blind, kind of touches his arm, and he says, oh, it's your brother Esau, and he gives him his blessing. And then once he has his blessing, that's something in ancient culture they couldn't take back. And so Jacob realizes, oh, I've got the blessing. I am now the next in kin. I am going to inherit the kingdom, as it were. And Esau catches wind of this, and like any big hairy man, he just decides he's going to kill him. So anyway, he, he's, he's going after his brother, and he's, he's going to say, like, hey, you robbed me of the one thing that I was supposed to have in life. This is my birthright. I've been told since I was a baby that this is what I was going to get, and you robbed me of that. And so as a result, he's going to find him. He's going to get even. So Jacob has to take off, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs away. He's a fugitive. He's lied, and he's on the run. This is not where we believe, especially as modern-day 2019 American Christians, God should show up, <laughs> right? The fugitive on the run, the liar, the greedy person, this is where God's going to show up? This is who God's going to show up to? But here's where we find Jacob. This is uh, in the scriptures. Um, it says, Jacob left uh, Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, and that's important, it just doesn't name the place, it just says a certain place. He stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, I love this part because it doesn't say descending and ascending. It says ascending and descending. So what that means is when Jacob sees these angels, they're not starting up there. They're starting here. They're starting here and then going up the ladder. That's the starting point. So what it's saying is God has been in this place here first, and he's going up there. there that's the route that heaven is going right now in this dream that Jacob is having. Uh, there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will be spread out to the west and to the east, and the north and to the south. All peoples on, all, uh, on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. This is a man on the run from his brother who wants to kill him, and God on high is saying to him, hey, even in this moment, even in your fear, in your stress, in your dark night of the soul, I'm with you. I'm here for you. I'm with you, and I'll watch over you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land, and I will not leave until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 
Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. So what we have here is a story of a fugitive on the run who has an encounter with God as he lays down for a dark night of the soul sleep. We've all had those stressful nights, right? There's something nagging at you you can't get out of your head. As a result, God comes to him in a dream in a super interesting way. He comes to him and he shows him this ladder that shows a connection between heaven and earth. And more than that, that shows a connection on the very random ground that Jacob chose to lie on. And he said, hey, right where you are, there's a connection. Right where you are, there are angels just hanging out all around you. Right where you are. Right in this stress, right in this worry, right where you are. And so when he wakes up, right, he comes out of this obsession about running away. You see, just as much as the good stuff, like our our career choices, our what have you, our car choices, our house choices, our family choices, whatever you will, that can become an idol, right? Because we usually put it on, hey, that, that worldly good thing has become an idol for you. Our fear and our worry and our stress and our anxiety can become just as much of an idol. You can worship worry and stress so, so easily. (laughs) We give so much power to worry and stress. And all worry and stress is, and someone said this, and I can't remember who it was, but they said worry is just praying to the wrong thing. It's the same amount of energy that you spend worrying that you could spend trusting, right? So that had become an idol for Jacob. He had defined himself as one liar and two fugitive and three on the run. That was his idol. That was what he was worshiping because he was worrying in it. His anxiety was just taking him over. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm taking that away from you now. I'm offering you something even bigger that you can't hold on to, but it's hope. I'm showing you a picture of your life in the grand scheme of things. And I'm not saying that it's immediately going to get better. In God's speech to him, it no longer says, hey, by the way, I went to Esau. He had a dream too. I've smoothed everything over. It just simply says, hey, you're here. I see you in this panic. I see you in this hurt. I'm with you in this hurt. And I'll be with you as you journey through it and as you complete it. But I just want to give you a bigger picture because that's your hope. I want to give you a picture of your entire life, of where you will end up. And that's hope, right? And that's God's message to us through this story every time we read it or every time we're reminded of it, that, ooh, there's a larger picture. There's something bigger going on. Even in the midst of my struggle, of my my craziness, there's hope. There's a grander vision for your life that's already out there. And God is saying, I see you in this moment, and I'm going to go with you. I would so much rather follow a God that sees me and walks with me than one that snaps his fingers and all is done. Because a God that snaps his fingers and all is done is not fair at all, (laughs) right? I find it hilarious when someone prays for a parking spot or for a football team to win or something like that because all that's doing is for the next person screwing them over, right? It's not really helping. I would so much rather follow the God that says, no, I'm with you, even in the midst of that. And I love Jacob's response. It's not, I messed up. It's not, I should feel guilty for an hour. It's not that like, oh man, I didn't get it. It's this. He says, oh, surely God was in this place and I was not aware. Some translations say this, and I love this. 
It says, surely God was in this place, and I, I did not know. I, I did not know. What if we walked out of every situation in our lives and uttered that sentence, surely God was in this place, and I, I did not know. Or even better, right here, right now, in the present situation, we go, surely God is in this place, and I'm just not aware of it. And the most important thing Jacob does is not that he just says, I'm, oh, God is in this place, and I, I know. But he builds something. He overturns that pillow, which was the, the very place of his anxiety, where all that sweat is pouring out on that brick pillow, <laughs> right? And he flips it upside down. He gives it a new perspective. He gives it a new name. And he says, this place is now going to be called Bethel, which is an awesome Hebrew name for God's house, but it also begins with B, which always stands for within. So God is within everything, even if I'm not aware. God is within me running away from my brother. God is within this situation, and I'm going to trust that from now on. He builds something, a monument to remind him that God is within. That every time I think of this stone, every time I walk by this stone, every time I come to this monument, I will remember that my image of God got bigger. That I couldn't hold on to it, but it's within everything now. And so in moments in our lives where we try and craft a tiny little image of what we need or what we want, and then God sort of blows the doors open and we have to be forced to say, oh my gosh, God was in this place and I did not know. Don't forget to build something. <laughs> Don't forget to write it down. Don't forget to tell a friend. Don't forget to shout it from the rooftops. Don't forget to post it on Instagram. Whatever you would like to do, don't forget to build something because as human beings, we need that to remind us that God is in this place and that maybe we didn't know. Let's pray together. God, um, I'm just so grateful uh, that you are a God that reveals um, bigger and better things. That even now as we walk out of this place and into our week and into our, uh, our unique brand of on the run, our unique brand of stress or heartache or joy, that you would just remind us that you're here, you're within. Uh, that we're never without your presence. It's not something that needs to be invited in or coaxed or, or brought up, but it's us that need to be <laughs> reminded uh, that you're all around and that you're working in our lives. And that work is good. We thank you for that. We love you. Amen.